Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach at the Aspire Academy, Alex Natera. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 44 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Alex Natera on the phone who is Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach at the Aspire Academy. So Alex is the, I think, maybe third or fourth person from the Aspire Academy uh, and each one's been uh, absolutely great, so it was great to get Alex on and have a really good chat. So this episode is going to be split into two parts. So the first part, which is obviously this part, is going to focus on uh, developing a, a sprint program so Alex as he gets into in the, in the discussion uh, works with track and field athletes over in Qatar so he gets into the the, uh, the crux of his program um, and how he how he develops his, his track and field athletes so we discuss um, where to start where he started in, in developing that program uh, developing horizontal versus vertical force which is a, a very kind of on vogue uh, topic at the minute and then transfer of training from the weight room to the track. So it's a great chat with Alex. As I say in the first part of the episode, this is take two. We're gonna do it in one single part, um, but just got so much information um, from Alex's point of view, which was absolutely great. It was kind of, um, it seemed obvious to actually split it into two. So the second part, which is coming up next week, is gonna be focusing on his PhD and his, uh, his work on uh, repeated bouts of power, which again is really, really interesting, so I'd encourage you to check that out. So just before we get on to the chat with Alex, just want to remind you that you can catch up with all previous episodes of the podcast on paceyperformance.co.uk. You can also get links to all the resources that are mentioned in this episode at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 44. Last but not least, if you wouldn't mind giving an honest rating and review on iTunes. So far we've got, I think, 15 or 16 reviews, which is great, but I'd love to get more. So if you could just take two minutes um, and give an, honest and, uh, give an honest rating and review over on iTunes, that would be great. You can also follow me on Twitter at PaceyPerform, and that will keep you up to date with everything that's going on the podcast. But I will speak to you in a few minutes, and here is the interview with Alex Natera. Hi guys, welcome to the Pace of Performance podcast. So this is take two, not that anyone will know, um, but take two with Alex Natera. So this is going to be the first part of a chat with Alex, um, and we're going to discuss all things track and field, and a little bit about his experience as well. So just before we get Alex on, just want to thank him again for his time. Um, for this take two. Uh, welcome to the podcast and ask him to um, give us a little bit of information on his background, uh, his education and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on here, a pleasure to share and uh, be involved in uh, the great lineup you've got so far. No worries, mate. No problem. Uh, so for me, really, it started uh, very young. Um, I was a competitive swimmer um, as, a, as a young kid and um, I had a bit of a fascination for the dry land work that we were doing, the supplementary work towards our swimming. Um, I fancied it. I kind of saw its effects even at such a at, at such a young age, and that got me interested in it. But it wasn't until 
um, went to boarding school in Brisbane in Australia from a, from an island up north. And uh, we had a full-time strength and conditioning coach there. And so from the ages of sort of 12 to 13, was heavily involved in him and he got me into Olympic lifting and and uh, many other uh, things to do with physical performance. And it was from there I sort of had a real fascination of uh, strength and conditioning and um, the performance or physical performance aspects of sport. And it was kind of very early on then that I sort of decided I knew what I wanted to do. So I knew I wanted to be a, a fitness coach as such. And I was pretty amazed that, that uh, you could actually make a living uh, through it back then. Um, but, you know, normal things happened, going through school, playing a lot of sports, and it was rugby that kind of drove me um, off. Rugby had just become a professional sport, and so I tried to uh, sort of go down that route, really. It brought me over to England, and uh, after a few years of flogging to death a career that kind of probably wasn't really going to eventuate, um, I then settled into sort of semi-professional rugby, and it was then uh, through that time that allowed me to start doing some work in in uh, the primary sort of passion I had, which was you know, physical development of sorts. Um, and through that, I, uh, I got personal training qualifications and sort of sports massage qualifications and started uh, personal training um, while I carried on with my rugby career. And um, I was fortunate that rugby was able to support me financially so I could be quite picky with who I was uh, taking on as clients and found myself taking on more sports uh people, some weekend warriors, the odd professional athlete, um, and I really explored that further. took me to uh, running a gym and running the personal training facilities out of a gym down in southeast London, and it was there where uh, it just so happened to be we, we were across the road from uh, Crystal Palace Football Club, and it was uh, a meeting with uh, their head of performance at the time, John Harbin, um, who basically asked me if I wanted a job, and that started my my real uh, pers- uh, my strength and conditioning career. And so I was with Crystal Palace for best part of two and a half seasons under John Harbin and uh, Ian Dowie as, as the governor. And um, when they moved on, it sort of spurred me on to, to carry on with my development and, and push the academic side of things. So obviously I hadn't had anything by then. So I decided as a, as a mature student uh, to go to, uh, to my undergrad at St Mary's uh, University in Twickenham. There I did my bachelor's of sports science and then moved on to my, my master's. And then uh, now I'm currently doing my, doing my PhD uh, with Bond University in, in Australia. But through that period of time, um, I took up roles with, uh, so from football, I went over into rugby. I spent four years with, with rugby um, in, uh, in National Division One with Blackheath. Um, I then got a job at the English Institute of Sport uh, after the Beijing Olympic Games, so with a run into uh, to London, I worked with the English Institute of Sport, which was a fantastic experience and really the experience that kind of, um, I think, took me to a, a better, a newer level of strength and conditioning and, and understanding of physical development. So I have massive uh, appreciation of what uh, where I developed and how I um, expanded my horizons really with the EIS. Now I moved back to Australia with um, South Australian Sports Institute. And, uh, and now I'm currently here at Aspire Academy through this uh, in Doha. And through this time, I kind of, I, I, I got a grounding with a, a number of different sports, but uh, track and field has been sort of the last six years involved uh, with track and, spil- uh, track, and uh, track and field and particularly sprinting. Um, but also great uh, 
underpinning knowledge uh, gained through a variety of different sports, including a long time spent with modern pentathlon of, of all sports, which was, uh, which was an amazing sport in terms of being able to really challenge me uh, in a new environment, um, multidisciplinary environment, and uh, uh, pretty work, a pretty hectic work schedule. Sounds good. I've just written a few things down. I've got a few more things to ask you. The, um, the kind of transition from uh, athlete to coach is one that interests me because it's, it's one thing that I've gone through. I'm sure a lot of other coaches uh, have gone through. What was that transition like for you? I know you were kind of full-time playing, then part-time playing, part-time coaching, and then obviously full-time coaching. How, how was that transition? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. Um, we're full of bias, unfortunately, as, as people anyway. But as athletes, we're also very, very full of bias. So what worked for me or what didn't work for me was something that influenced me on how I went forward in my, in my not only my strength and conditioning coaching, but also my technical coaching. So I had a period of time as a technical coach as well where I, and, and, and a man manager was a director of rugby for a, another national league team as well. Um, and that was an experience that really I failed a lot at, really. I made a lot of mistakes with man management and with technical rugby, the way I thought the game should be played, and then also with, with strength training and, and fitness training for rugby and, and, uh, and the other things that go with it. And, and through that, I think it was, it was just a massive developmental curve for me, understanding that actually there's more to it than what I went through and what I experienced, and I think that governs me now with what I do. So I love strength training. I love getting out there and banging out biggest numbers in bench, dead, and squat. And, you know, that's not for everyone. That's not for every, every, every course of action. So I think it was a steep learning curve. And it, I think in reflection, it now helps me in terms of eradicating my bias and really looking at what's needed. So just to kind of quash or confirm a rumor, is it, is it true that you listen to um, European music while you bench in the gym? I'm Aladdin, hey? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'm a massive country music fan, so I listen to country music, and I get a um, and I love it even when I'm training. Um, pumps me up even to even to to lift heavy or whatever. Maladin has some serious Euro pop stuff that he plays when he when he plays, and so he's uh, he's having a go there um, at me surreptitiously. <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, just one more thing on your kind of background. Uh, so working under Ian Dowie, so that's obviously I don't know what what early two thousands is it. Yeah, 2003. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know what he's like, you know, philosophy-wise as a coach, but he was kind of in the era of, you know, football being quite um, a little bit more hardcore than it is now. What was his, how was his take on kind of strength and conditioning and taking in the kind of more scientific aspects of things? Yeah, I've got to be honest, I wasn't that scientific back then to be honest yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was, wasn't until after then that we we drummed it down i mean i was probably i i, I hasten to say like a lot of personal trainers because that's not not correct at all but you know i had my knowledge through personal training courses through doing lots of reading and and it wasn't necessarily peer-reviewed reading you know it was, it was what, what was out there at the time um but uh in Dowie back then there's there's no coincidence that john harbin the head of performance was rugby league aussie background aussie rugby league background and I was obviously a rugby union background. I don't know whether the, I think the Aussie link was more John Harbin getting me involved rather than uh, Ian Dowie's um, thoughts on it. But Ian Dowie had uh, an amazing understanding of all sports. And, um, you know, he'd know the results from the rugby 
uh, when I'd go and, when I'd see him on uh, Sunday or Monday, he'd know exactly the results from three divisions down. He knew everything. So he had a great understanding of a lot of different sports, a lot of passion for different sports. And I think it's no coincidence that he brought us from a rugby background to get that sort of environment um, into it. And to be fair, it was it was difficult. Um, and my my job was just strength and power. So that's all I, I focused on, really. Um, and uh, it was difficult in terms of the amount of playing these boys had to do. But you know what? Hats off. They all bought in and, they, um, and, and they'd all get stuck in. They, they enjoy learning the Olympic lifts. Um, and we, we pushed them as far as they, as we could safely. And we had the support of the governor the whole time. So we're lucky, lucky, uh, lucky, um, lucky coincidence, if you like. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I just want to move on to discussing your work in, uh, in Doha with the, with the track and field. So developing a sprint program, where did you start when you came into, when you came to Qatar to develop that, that system for your guys? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, with these, with, with Qatar, main part of my job focuses on um, we we have a we have a group from twelve years of age up to about you know college age students and scholarship students around twenty odd years of age. Um, so you know with with that hat on, I'm all about developing young athletes rather than necessarily a sprint program. But we do get the odd gem here who develops nicely, and at the ages of twenty, we can we can do some more. Um, I guess, serious um, work with them. I also work with an elite group, uh, Coach Jam Arden's uh, middle distance group, who are world-class group. So I do obviously some some much more senior programming, I guess, for them, um, but they're a middle distance group. So with the sprint guys in general, looking at sort of senior athletes, you know, I, I very much look at one, what sort of program is being run. So what does the coach do? Um, the programs I personally like working with are short to long programs, uh, kind of Charlie Francis type model. So short to long meaning literally you're running shorter distance and moving on to the, to the longer distances throughout your training cycles. I like double periodized peaks. So a, a peak somewhere around the indoor season and a peak again in the outdoor season. And uh, I like very much high low training systems. One day with big neural loading and the next day with low neural loading. So with this, I look at, first of all, what the coach runs. If that's what he runs, then I very much plan on supporting things throughout the phase, uh, throughout the phases. So with general preparation phases, they accelerate all the time. They accelerate all year. So I support acceleration uh, training. And I look at, certainly through GPP, developing strength or retaining strength levels if I deem that they were strong enough. And uh, I look at a lot of concentric focus throughout that phase. I look at preparatory stuff for... Uh, for plyometrics, um, I look at horizontal force production. Um, I catch deeper in my cleans and, my, and, and snatches. Snatches. I uh, and as we go through the phases, I start catching higher in my cleans. I start doing things through more upright positions, and um, certainly through special preparation phases, I then uh, start eradicating the bigger lifts, the bigger heavier lifts like the the heavy squats and the heavy deadlifts and the strong enough and the guys who are strong enough and the guys who retain strength, I uh, retain strength. I completely drop those lifts and I'm happy to do uh, end range rack pulls, um, single leg strength work. Um, and I look at really increasing the plyometric load and uh, a lot of isometric work. I do isometric prep work through GPP along with a lot of eccentric work through GPP. 
And then in the special preparation phases, I hit a lot of isometric work at very high intensities uh, to, again, support stiffness, reactivity, um, and the requirements of max velocity running. Then when we go into competition phases, you know, that's funny enough, which is a little bit uh, different from most track and field uh, coaches or SNCs. Uh, I then bring a lot more med ball work in that environment. Um, I keep up my is uh, isometric work. I drop volumes completely. Uh, we stay on some reactive jumping, uh, reactive jumping even with load. Um, and then we move more into competition. Do you want to talk us through a little bit of your um, isometric and eccentric work that you do in GPP? My, uh, my eccentric work, uh, first of all, will I'll work through time and attention to start with. It's not a massive performance link for me, um, but it's a preparatory thing. So I, I look at long time and attentions early on, get them used to controlling weight eccentrically, and then I really try and overload eccentric work towards the end of GPP. Um, and when I say overload, I'm looking at, you know, the traditional overloading levels, 100 uh, plus, 100 plus percent RM lifts. So I'm looking up to 130 to one, even up to 140 and 150% one RM. And they're literally just trying to, trying to break the movement rather than, uh, able to control it. So they're literally trying to push up against a, a weight that's effectively pushing them down. And so it's hard with them. It's hard with eccentric stuff like that with real overloaded, um, work to try and get an exercise. So we use, uh, hack squatting quite often, hack squat machines. Um, and, uh, so they seem to, they, well, they, they work well. They seem to apply a good load of this. Easiest thing there without being crazy on your weight is just doing a double leg up, single leg down sort of stuff. So we do a lot of that. Um, uh, and then I need to drop that out. Comes, comes, uh, uh, special preparation phases. I, I drop a lot of that eccentric work out. It's just, it's too, um, don't worry about the muscle soreness side of things, but just the coordination and uh, proprioception, it, it affects that. So really, SBP is all about running fast and real quality running. So I try and have no fatigue in the system whatsoever. So I drop it out then. With my isometric work, once again, we'll start off longer holds. Um, it's sub-maximal, so you can hold these hold these uh, isometric holds for a long time, a longer period of time. Um, again, it's training uh, to tolerate isometric loads and understanding the isometric contraction. And then through towards the end of GPP and early SBP and throughout, uh, it's real maximal loading isometric conditions. And they're, they're not holding much more than three seconds because the loads are so high. Um, I have three kind of go-to exercises on there that I use uh, quite a lot. And there's one sort of more ankle dominant, um, one knee and, and, and hip dominant, and then one really a hip dominant exercise. Um, one thing I like doing too is um, rather than just hold a straight isometric contraction per se, I like them having to sort of create some sort of pretension before the isometric contraction comes on. So I like alternating limbs, um, a free limb having to build some sort of pretension before it hits the ground or hits whatever object it's hitting, and then maximally tries to hit a peak or a high rate of force development with an isometric contraction, and then we swap. So it's an alternate, alternate type thing. Cool. So you, you mentioned um, kind of moving from catching your cleans and snatches in a, in a deep position to transitioning to get higher and higher as you go through the phase. You just want to talk to us a little bit about why you do that and maybe some influences you've had in your programming um, from the people. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, the guy I, 
the guy I got this uh, this type of philosophy off, philosophy off doesn't probably know that I got it off him. I got him through a, a backward means, but it made sense to me. A guy named Michael Johnson, he's uh, the current uh, strength scientist for UK Athletics. Um, so it made sense to me through general preparation phases, working through extended ranges and then working through more, more um, sports-specific, if you like, event-specific ranges through SPP. So it's the same thing with um, with my Olympic lifting. Uh, once again, you know, Olympic lifting is a high technical, high technical demand to do it really, really well. And uh, we never in sport have that type of time to develop. And I think we probably don't pay enough respect to Olympic lifters and the time they take to de dedicate it to one particular skill. So for me, I like the lower catching for more athletic, rounded um, development. Uh, and then through the latter phases, um, I like the higher positions through uh, one better rate of force development, but two much more specific angles uh, that forces are uh, needed and uh, and produced from. Um, with backtracking a little bit in terms of my pretension things, my pretension thought process, um, I like working off blocks as well. So we'll work off high blocks when we're cleaning. Uh, so the barbell and body mass don't completely uh, take up all the pretension. So you're having to develop some pretension before you actually get below to the bar. Cool. So in a more general, in a more general sense, I know you mentioned the uh, the guy from UK Athletics. Who are the other kind of influences you've had uh, through the years? Yeah. So um, definitely Michael Johnson, uh, John Goodwin from uh, St Mary's uh, University. Uh, has has had a major influence in a few um, few aspects. I was fortunate enough to get him involved in a little uh, workshop that I ran for um, my group at the EIS in, in in Bath, where we we had a few guys. We had Ian, Ian um, uh, sorry, we had John Goodwin from an academic track and field background. We had uh, Bunsey from a who was head of SNC for Bath at the time from a rugby background. Um, and we also had a, uh, a powerlifter um, and SNC for London Irish, uh, um, Rob, uh, down there as well to present on theirs, um, their philosophy on max strength training. And with that came, you know, a really poignant message that, that, that's rung clear in my, my head for a long time now and de definitely governs some of my philosophy. When John Goodwin spoke, he, he spoke about, you know, a, a squat just being a squat, you know, squat numbers, a squat number, great, you know. And yes, there's... There's plenty of great things about a squat and punching up a squat, uh, a big squat. Um, you know, the, the capacity itself to be able to produce force through hip, knee, and ankle to get a big squat number up is great. But at the end of the day, it, it's nowhere near sprinting. It's so far removed from sprinting. So whether you need to squat all year round in someone who's a great squatter or a strong guy is questionable. Um, so that rung true in my mind and made me think a little bit more again about my my own biases towards things. Um, uh, another thing um, that uh, came from that meeting while I'm on it is um, a thought process around uh, max strength again with the, the powerlifter Rob who, who presented. And um, it was interesting. He, he, he mentioned that he had just gone, I think, from 300 or 310 to 330 kilos in, in a recent competition in his squat. And he was pumped. And I remember saying to him, you know, wow, this is unbelievable strength gain, you know, in a, whatever his blocks were, I think they were eight or 12 week blocks. And 
he laughed at me. He said, oh, there's no way I've gotten stronger. You know, I just changed my technique and I've gone up. And it made me question then again, like, you know, there's a, a power lifter. He lifts way more than all of us. You know, this is what he does. He lifts, um, and I'm not talking about weight, but frequency of lifting, you know, and he is able to get this sort of improvement on his squat. And, uh, and he's professing then that it's just technical change. So how much technical change are we getting? If we're all lifting 50% of what he does in terms of frequency of lifting, we've got all these other sports to or movements in our sport and fitness to do and technical aspects, tactical aspects of that sport. And how much are we getting mastery anywhere near the level he's getting mastery at? So he's still having to pick up techniques that are in for increasing his force capacity, um, or maybe I should say force capacity in inverted commas. He's, he's increasing technique to increase his squat rather than um, actual force capacity changes. So it, it made me really question that now. And then this brings along, brings on something else that I, I read and I hear. I hear people talking about, um, you know, elite sprinters not necessarily being that strong. Like you can run under 10 seconds for 100 meters, but not be that strong. And I think that has to be put in inverted commas because there's no doubt about it. For them to run under 10 seconds, they are producing a high level of force in a very short period of time but there is a significant amount of force they're developing relative to body weight now because they can't squat two or two times 2.5 times body weight in the gym doesn't mean they can't produce force and force quickly they are strong people they are absolutely strong people it's just that they do it in a very specific way and gym is gym gym assists but a squat is a squat and a deadlift is a deadlift and there's no other way of looking at it so yes that that workshop was very influential in the way i thought but um, there's more and there's more recent influences um, like uh, some people I've met re recently and I work with. And I, I, one of the coaches I've worked with now for the last two years who was trained under the, um, the Bondachuk methods and through him and, and influences through Derek Everly and understanding their processes. I've also got a, a real high regard for, um, for Bondachuk's methods and at least the way I understand it, you know, a lot of my programming through SBP is not about incremental loading. It's about hitting a particular intensity that I'm happy with, that's explosive, and we just hold it. We hold it for an extended period of, period of time. SBPs can generally go for 12 weeks, can be more, can be shorter. It depends. And I'm more than happy without um, cycling uh, loads throughout that, but just holding constant intensities all the way through. And they reflect nicely on all the performance data that, data that we pick up too, whether it be jump, whether it be um, uh, up to jump readings and other data that we collect, force rate, force platform readings as well. So um, I'm pretty confident with um, with how that works. But again, it's the athlete you're working with that dictates your methodologies all the time. I mean, if you saw one program from one of my athletes to another, you would think, well, what, what's this guy's philosophy? Philosophy. And the fact is, I'm implying what's appropriate for the particular athlete, or at least what I think is appropriate for the particular athlete. So I'm here talking about an athlete that's quite strong, gym strong, but also explosive as well through whatever metrics we choose to measure. And then that's the process I go through in a not so strong athlete. Absolutely. Some sort of squat, some sort of big bilateral lift will focus all the way through. Um, there's no doubt about it. And then particularly perhaps also a strong athlete that isn't so technically brilliant, hasn't got anywhere near mastery in a particular lift. I will keep that lift throughout as well not necessarily going heavy on the lift. I'll keep a nice intensity, a, a, set, a sensible intensity. When I say sensible, I mean around that 70% mark. Could be up as 80, but I'm not going to be pushing massively above that. 
And I'll keep that in the whole cycle all the way through. So then we hit the ground running come next GPP. Because if I take that out and they're not good technical, they have not, they don't have good technical mastery of a particular lift, then we're starting from scratch again. And it's, it's a six, seven, eight, eight week process before we start getting the correct loads back into the system. So there's many different things that will influence how I program for a particular sprinter for sure. Um, so just one thing that's kind of come up over the last couple of months um, on Twitter, you know, blogs and things, um, was the development of uh, horizontal versus vertical force, or the um, the kind of focus of of training to develop one or both of them uh, qualities. You've mentioned developing horizontal force already uh, in your GPP. What's your kind of take on it um, with regards to the importance of both uh, when it comes to a sprint program? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, I'm I'm a generalist and a specialist in that I do like um, the gym and the gym lifts are general lifts and they are important for sport performance. Absolutely. Um, the special lifts are great. We're starting to get a little bit closer. But then, um, you know, anything that's even bordering around specificity. So when we're talking about horizontal projection of force, then we're talking about something that's getting a little bit more specific there. And look, I think they go hand in hand. I think they're both needed. So I think the general lifts that we do increase capacity and that capacity is absolutely needed for horizontal force. Um, and when we're talking about coming out of the blocks, uh, when we're talking about the block start itself, and we're talking about coming out of the blocks through first three, uh, first three strides and the rest of um, the drive phase, you know, we are talking about strong relationships with relative power. So you must, uh, be able to produce a lot of power to come out of those blocks, hold correct positions where your center of mass, center of gravity are in front of your feet. If you're not producing power, you, you kiss the dirt pretty quick or you protect yourself and you stand up pretty quick, okay, which is, and neither is the first one is definitely not useful because you're, you're getting grazes across your face and the, the second one's not useful either for, um, for accelerating, okay. So, and it doesn't just apply that because you have force, uh, force, explosive force potential, that you're able to hold low, low, uh, low position. You need that coupled with technical feedback. So the ability or the understanding technically of how to accelerate and how to come out of the block or, or a roll start or, or whatever you want to call it. So for me, they have to go hand in hand, capacity plus the developmental um, uh, positions for horizontal force. So the use of equipment like prowlers, like sleds, however you want to push or pull an object, horizontal jumping, horizontal jumping with bungees, so you can hold that position and understand that position. And I think that's the key, understanding the position, because there's not just straight transfer from doing horizontal work to, um, to an acceleration. You need to be able to understand it. So cueing is absolutely vital. So there's three things for me. It's, yeah, absolutely, the development of the capacity. The second is uh, doing some work specific to horizontal uh, force propulsion. And then the third one, technical cueing to understand it and actually have the confidence to hold those positions as well. And now these sort of things um, don't go easily with weaker people. Um, it, it's tough. It's difficult to hold these positions without a level of strength. So, and this is why they all three of them play an important part. Um, and in terms of the transference, I think you need all three, really. Cool. So when you say about queuing, 
and kind of educating the athlete about the, the position itself. What kind of things are you, um, how are you kind of describing that to the athlete and what kind of things are you saying to them? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not big on, um, I see a lot of, a lot of internal, external G stuff out there at the moment and I'll, uh, uh, look, I'm not, I'm not massive on it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to cue whatever's effective. You know, whatever they understand is what works, whether it's external, internal is, is obsolete to me. Um, so if I tell someone this is a negative shin angle, that's where I want you and they can do it, then the cue has worked. I'm mm-hmm. okay with that. If I'm saying lean more forward or whatever, then that cue has worked as well. But ultimately what we want to get people doing is pushing back. And it sounds easy, but uh, truth be known, it's not easy to be able to push back um, with a nice negative shin, an- shin angle and hold that for as, uh, for, for as many strides as you can really. Um, so that's the key cue for me really, pushing back. And with, with that, that takes over the cue side of things. But then you need to be able to learn how to apply that when you're pushing a prowler sled or towing a heavy sled. And then you need the, the optimally, you need the strength slash relative power first to be able to do that as well. So last one um, in part one, just to the, um, about the transfer of training. I know there's a lot of um, kind of the bond truck methodology talks a lot about this, um, this transfer of training, but how are you kind of maximizing that, that transfer from the weight room um, onto the track. Yeah, transfer of training is is a great one. I mean, that's the golden nugget, really, isn't it? And with uh, with our game in the sprint side of things, um, it's we have a measure, and the measure is go from A to B as fast as you can. Um, and yes, we'll look at A to B from eight to ten, or eight to thirty, or eight to sixty, and eight to hundred. And from there, we ultimately get whether what we're doing is transferable or not. The problem is sprint training itself, of course, it's not a problem, uh, but sprint training itself is highly transferable. Okay, so you will do sprint, if you do sprint training, you will get faster and strength training can support that process, absolutely. But sprint training will make you faster. So it's very hard to delineate, oh, this, what I'm doing at the moment, this cool isometric stuff that I'm doing in the gym is having an immediate transfer to his max velocity running, his upright running. Um, so we need an intermediate, so we do test things on force plates or whatnot, obviously. So we do drop jumps for that, and we go, yeah, actually, look, stiffness is changing or reactive index is changing. Perhaps this is having a great effect. But the transfer line is very hard, and, and, it's, and it's a bit washy. However, I, I approach transfer in a specific way. Again, I have my capacity development, which is the gym-based stuff, and then I have my link training, which is the sled towing, for instance, and then I have my performance itself. And now, in the weak athlete or the more junior, less trained, inexperienced athlete, the strength training has transferred. It, it works. It just it just works. The body figures it out and has a new bit of capacity, and it then utilizes that capacity. In the more senior athlete, this is where it becomes very tricky. And the capacity itself, once it's above a certain level, doesn't have direct transfer. Even in um, uh, someone close to mastery, and once again, remember, we, we never get to mastery, even if we're powerlifters. Someone close to mastery still pops up 20 kilos, 25 kilos on the squat or the deadlift. That still doesn't transfer. And the reason for me it doesn't transfer is very much because it is so far removed from the technical aspects of the event itself. So we need something for the body to recognize the capacity. So we need a middle tier, uh, middle tier stimulus. So for me, that is the sleds, that is the prowlers, 
that is the plyometrics, um, that is the vest-loaded stair bounds or, or, or strides or sprints with vest with additional loads or hypergravity conditions as such. Um, and that's more because of motor skill, motor learning. So for me, the body, the neuromuscular system understands now where to utilize the capacity. And it does that through the link training, which then has a, a better performance effect with the actual event. Um, yeah, so that's really my focus. And, and I like trying to keep them as close as I can together. Um, they don't have to be in a complex, although I do complex and I use complexes quite a lot. Uh, maybe any any potentiation I guess out of it is, is an added bonus, but really it's for me to get the neuromuscular system recognizing uh, the, the the pattern. Um, but if it's not in a complex, I'm more than happy to do it after a session as well. Um, and I have no problems with that as long as it's fairly close. So they recognize these um, these motor skill patterns. And I, I guess that's quite heavily influenced by some of um, uh, name's going to escape me now. The Dutch guy, what's his name? Yep. Now you got me now. What's his name? Um, works at Welsh Rugby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got his name. But I'll just I'll edit it in. I'll just shoot it straight in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mate. Um, a, a lot of a lot of his um his ideas on um on 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 learning on motor learning actually. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go the, the the full Franz Bosch way, but certainly he's he's influenced me in in this type of thing. Transfer is a motor learning thing, and if we have things too far removed in very elite athletes, in guys that are quick, and I'm talking guys sort of 10-5 down, that sort of level athlete, well, they're not just going to recognize squat as we do it. And I, I don't say this, I say this from, from failing a lot. I say this from pushing strength numbers, pushing them, pushing them, going, okay, we've got a, a two-time bodyweight squatter, I'm going to take him to two and a half, a 225, a 2.25, I'll take him to 250, 2.5, sorry, I'll take him to 2.6, and there's nothing happening, not even in the blocks not even in the ones in, in the, the part of the, the sprint that's more related to strength and power. Um, so so this this is why I kind of eradicate some of that stuff in, in a strong athlete. And I, I sorry, I do test this through through loaded explosive um, explosive strength qualities. So I test that through loaded jumps. Um, anywhere, depending on how strong they are, from 80 to 120 kilo squat jump, I'll look at look at that over the season while I've either while while I've taken strength out of it as a complete stimulus, completely out of it, I'll have a look at that. And you know what? So often that that the neuromuscular stimulus just through sprinting alone and perhaps some of the other stuff we're doing in gym, that barbell velocity at 120 kilos keeps rising, rising and rising and rising and rising. Um, I did a little poster um, 12 weeks after cessation of strength training completely. So not even a single leg stimulus on anything remotely over uh, 85% 1RM and power was power as in barbell velocity of a squat jump was still increasing. And that, that 120 kilos was something like a, uh, 60% 1RM load for this athlete. Um, and yeah, it, it still kept increasing, kept increasing. So we got to understand too, that sprinting alone is a huge neuromuscular, uh, neuromuscular stimulus, which doesn't differentiate between a specific quality. It's not just working the velocity and it's working everything because our systems all work together at once. They're all working and then everything gets promoted. Everything, everything moves nicely upwards. So, um, yeah, certainly, um, 
certainly major influences in the way I look at things now with, with some sprinters. Just one last thing. Is that link training all year round? Yeah, ideally it is. Now, bear in mind, my link training um, may now, so link training, when we talk about specificity, we're, we're looking at an, a particular element rather than necessarily everything must re replicate the event. Because everything replicates the event, it's not link training anymore, it's the actual training. So my isometric stuff, for instance, in SPP, um, where you're having to actively pretense before you hit a really high rate of force development with a high load isometrically in a very specific angle, that would be link training. Okay. Um, in an acceleration phase, much easier there because you've got prowlers and things to, to pull against and hold, hold body positions correctly. So then that's, that's the link training in those sort of areas. Again, um, the vest loaded running is very tricky to do in SPP. Um, sometimes we can do it with a athlete that's not so sensitive. When I say not so sensitive, I mean, um, it interferes with their actual technique, their running technique. And this can happen. I haven't been experienced with it too much. But I've heard many coaches talk about um, how if you play too closely to the event, you can um, you can interfere with someone's technique. And now uh, I say that with tongue in cheek because I don't think you need a lot of volume. I think a lot of volume will have an effect with technique, a negative effect, but small amounts of volume with link training or transfer training or whatever you want to call it will not have an effect. Mm -hmm. Cool. So just before I forget, I just want to, um, well, we'll round up first. Um, it's the conference, the, the two conferences you've got going on over in uh, over in Doha in the next couple of months, maybe leading up to February. Do you just want to give us a bit of info and what it's about, what both are about, who it may kind of cater for, um, and where people are going to find it and uh, find a bit more information? Yeah, absolutely. Um Thanks. I'm sure Spar will be very happy with me. Uh, <laughs> and me. Having a plug, yeah. <laughs> so our um, our first one is for those athletically inclined. We have um athletics conference um, towards the end of August. I think it's between the 18th and the 20th of August where we've got a, a great lineup coming out there, uh, out here, um, from the likes of Jonas Dodu, um, Eckhart Arbeit, uh Lauren Seagrave in the, from the coaching side of things to Paul Bryce from UK Athletics, Michael Johnson again from UK Athletics, um, uh, and some, a lot of a lot of others uh, headliners around the world coming for that. So we're really excited about that one. It's um, it's a good mixture of um, theoretical content from coaches, from sports scientists, and also a lot of practical stuff as well. So um, I'd encourage anyone with an athletic inclination to get there. It's going to be a real focus on youth. Um, which is it's a one of its kind out there in terms of athletics conferences. Um, the other one that will be an amazing conference and one that I can't actually, um, I can't wait for it to occur, I want it to occur now, is a conference we've got on monitoring athlete training loads, hows and whys, and that's from the 23rd to the 25th of February. And again, we've got some big um, headliners there from Dave Martin, Bill Sands, Darren Burgess, Martin Bechet, our very own Marco Cardinale, uh, Inigo Mujica, Tim Gabbett, um, lots of guys coming out for that one as well. And they're going to have a, a real good say on all things monitoring from uh, from endurance performance through to strength, through uh, technical load, tactical loading, everything. So that's going to be a, a real big um, must-do to get on your list. Uh, the bonus is we are non-profit, so it's free. So uh, 
Happy days. <laughs> Flights in the uh, hotel aren't free, but we have definitely got um, uh, we've got two five star hotels on site here, and they uh, they are doing a reduced rate for anyone coming to the conferences. So um, so yeah, get involved, get out here, and to be honest, um, whether or not well yeah, enjoy the conference, but also come and share. Um, we've got a lot of good guys here on staff as well, and we love. Um, we have a lot of traffic coming through Doha now, which is a great de a destination when people are traveling sort of east from England or um, uh, America, um, and we get to spend a lot of time with guys. So please come in, make yourself known. Uh, we'll show you our greater facilities, and we'll, we'll pick pick your brains, and you can pick our brains. Probably not mine, but my colleague's brains. <laughs> that sounds great. So I'll put a um, – I know we did this before, but I'll, I'll put a link on the site so people can uh... – can click there and, and easy access to the information. So just before I let you go, where can people keep up to date with you? Uh, so, yeah, um, I said this last time, didn't I? I'm pretty new to um, to the social media side of things and, and self-promotion, but uh, um, things like this, this Rob, uh, I guess, help. So thanks for that. Yeah, pleasure. <laughs> um, Absolute pleasure. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> so um, I think my handle is at Alex underscore Natera. Um, so that's N-A-T-E-R-A as a surname. Um, and I think that's the best way to get me. Um, look, I'm, I'm also um, very happy for emails as well. Just email me um, on alex.natera at hotmail.com. Um, very happy to share. Really happy to get challenged with with thoughts and ideas. And, um, yeah, I, I welcome any, any, any feedback or, um, or criticism for that matter. Cool. Happy days. So again, I'll put all the um, the links to your email address and your, your Twitter and things on the site so people can get in touch with you. Um, so I'll just round up part one and we'll go um, just thank you for your time and we'll go part two. Cool, mate. All right, very, mate. Very, very, yeah. yeah uh, really great experience, mate. Thanks a lot and we'll uh, see you in part two. All right, pal. Speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 44 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I'm sure you'll agree that was a great chat with Alex and I can't wait, can't wait for you to hear part two, which will be coming up next week, which discusses his work with repeated bouts of power and his PhD. So just to keep you informed about what's going on in the podcast, we've got some great guests coming up and you can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the podcast at paceyperformance.co.uk and you can also follow me on Twitter at paceyperform. And I will see you for part two with Alex Natera in episode 45. <laughs>